Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president, professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by my fellow Old Testament professor, Dr. Peter Lee, also the dean of students here. Dr. Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament and academic dean. Dr. Grace Sutanto, Professor of Systematic Theology, and Paul Jean, Professor of New Testament. It's a joy to have you all here. We're continuing on in our conversation about the Apostles' Creed. And I do want to add one little note here on the front end. We've actually started a new way of interacting with the faculty podcast, and that's that you can ask questions yourself of the faculty, and we'll engage with those in upcoming episodes. And the way you can do that is by going to uh, the splash page here on our website. So the, the URL is rts.edu forward slash Washington forward slash podcast. So that's rts.edu forward slash Washington forward slash podcast. And if you scroll down, you'll see uh, a little section there that says, do you have a question to ask the professors? And uh, uh, you can post your question there and we will try to get to them in upcoming episodes. But we're continuing on with our discussion of the Apostles' Creed. And we're now at that article under the section on the Holy Spirit that says that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. And I think for a lot of people, you might think, well, this is a pretty basic Christian doctrine. This is the kind of thing you hear Christians talk about. And yet, why does it get its own special place? We already talked about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We've talked about our belief in the church and the communion of saints. Why do we get this specific phrase, article, dealing with the forgiveness of sins? And so to talk about that, let's start off with talking about what sin is. And so I think we want to start in the Old Testament on that, because I think if you think of the Old Testament as kind of the question that the New Testament is answering, um, we should be able to find something about that urgent, pressing need that all of humanity faces because of the reality of sin. So let me start off with you, Dr. Lee. Can you give us a little bit of Old Testament background to this idea of sin? Uh, yeah, uh, sin is a, a violation of the law of God. It is a, the law, of course, being a reflection of the uh, moral character of God. It is an affront to his moral character. It's a, it's a, a profaning of God's holiness. To, to violate his law, therefore, is it is disruptive in terms of the goal, the plan that the Lord had for his communion with uh, his creation, with his image bearers. Uh, he intended that to be a, a pure communion from the very beginning. And yet it was the entrance of sin, the violation of the, of the standard of the law of God done by humanity that was disruptive to that communion that had to be dealt with in order for that communion not only to be restored but to be perfected and glorified in a in a much more blessed uh, blessed way it's interesting you get these different words for what we now call sins you know collectively but words like transgression and sin proper i suppose you know some words have of a, a sort of a semantic range dealing with a burden or a weight. Other words have to do with kind of a breaking of a relationship or a transgressing of a law or some other kind of debt or something like that that's, that's, uh, that is that's that is owed to a party. It's interesting, actually, when you look at the sacrifices in the Old Testament, you get these 
sort of maybe five major sacrifices, depending on how you count. And they all seem to be dealing with different aspects of sin, whether it's a, a meal that you're sharing with the Lord or, 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 or something that you're paying, in other words, to pay off a debt or kind of a purging. You know, when you, when you sent that scapegoat out of the camp and you're purging the camp, you know, all of these are these kind of vivid pictures of what happens, the, the, the blood that needs to be shed, the sacrifice that needs to be given because of sin. And it's kind of interesting how they provide sort of a vivid, compelling collage of all of the issues that are affected because of the reality of the fall. As you mentioned, that, that thing that happens in the garden when uh, Adam and Eve uh, break the covenant. And they, they take and they eat of the fruit. And, you know, you see these implications. In many ways, the Old Testament is kind of a, a long study as to what the effect of that fall is and what, how it can be remedied. Absolutely. I think uh, that's just the damage, I guess you could say, of sin. It's not isolated or localized to one aspect or part of creation. It, it is pervasive everywhere, uh, not just affecting you know, uh, our relationships with one another, but our relationship with creation, uh, most definitely, of course, our, our relationship with the Lord, we have that mm-hmm. image of, you know, creation crying out for, uh, for the forgiveness of sins or redemption for sins, because it's been so negatively impacted. Um, and how the Lord's work of redeeming sin is, has to be just as cosmic or just as global and, pers- and universal, because uh, that is, what sin has done. It is that damaging. It is that horrible. You know, we live, of course, in post Genesis 3.15 in the post fall. I mean, in many ways, you could say that all of the hardships that we endure in life, and, you know, this isn't just Old Testament, but definitely new as well. But biblically, that all of the pain that we suffer, all of the agony that we have to endure is, is a result of sin. Yeah. It's interesting too, isn't it? That students ask me because I teach the Old Testament, and I'm sure they've asked you this too. Like, why all of this? Why, why this whole story? Why couldn't Jesus come right after the fall? And of course, the Bible doesn't tell us that, other than that God has ordained all of these things to come to pass to draw more glory and worship to Christ. And I think part of it, part of the answer sort of implied is perhaps it's that so that we would understand exactly what what sin meant for history, you know, that we would understand what had been lost and therefore we could better understand and glorify Christ and what he regained for us. And the extent of it. I mean, you you definitely see that as you see it kind of permeate and work itself out and, and the extent of sin, the power of sin and how um, pervasive and how dominating it is. I mean, uh, if there's yeah. anything in the Old Testament, it just it's a constant reminder that humanity is violating the the holiness of God, and yet the Lord is faithful and and gracious and merciful. Uh, it, it would be hard to get a real sense of that if Jesus just kind of came right away. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, Paul, tell us a little bit then. Now we we can't talk about sin for too long without talking about. Jesus and what Christ did on our behalf in order to secure this this thing that we're giving thanks for here in the Apostles' Creed, the forgiveness of sins. How is it, or where in the New Testament do you see the issue of the forgiveness of sins being addressed? Yeah, I was thinking about uh, just the rich ways that um, while you and Peter were talking, I was thinking about how uh, God said to 
Cain, you know, sin is crouching at the door, but you might, you must not let it like master you or overtake you. And it's just interesting how even before the law is given, you know, we see that sin is a force to be reckoned with. And I think I appreciate the way that both the Old Testament and the New Testament personify sin. For instance, in Romans 3, Paul says, we are under the power of sin. And so the Bible, it's just like interesting because it doesn't just talk about it as an idea or a condition, but the Bible personifies it as almost um, a master or a, a dictator that we need to be redeemed from, right? And even as you and Peter were discussing it, you know, I, I was also thinking about how sin, as all our listeners know, has become such an unpopular concept. But I still can't get around the fact that it's impossible to understand God, the message of the Bible, everything without having a very good grasp of what sin is. But at least in the New Testament, it talks about it presents sin in multiple ways, but one thing that really sticks out to me is that it's personified as a force that we need to be redeemed from. Yeah, and, and a force that to be redeemed from, we need somebody that's kind of in power, that's properly equipped, that, you know, the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sins. Uh, there has been no king who has been able to sinlessly guide the people of God into their promised rest. You know, there's this inadequacy for, uh, prior to the pages of the New Testament, there's this inadequacy in being able to deal with sin. There's a, the problem of sin is so great that the solutions that are in place in the Old Testament are not scalable. They can't handle the, the difficulty there. And so then Jesus comes and one of his first miracles is, of course, he, he, healing the paralytic, and he does this as a sign that he has authority to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus heals the paralytic's leg, and he says, so that you might know that the Son of Man is authorized to forgive sins. So for the first time in recorded history, we have somebody who, and th this in seed form, this is a kind of shadow of what we're going to see to come, but somebody who is finally authorized to forgive sins in the name of the Father. Uh, and, and what we'll see is over the course of Jesus's ministry, that will develop until we get, uh, and, and we'll see various ways in which, to, to Paul's point, uh, the ver there's these, the sin presents a variety of problems. And what we're seeing on the pages of the New Testament is that Jesus is the answer to each of those problems. If, if sin is your master, Jesus is the one who ransoms you from that master of Jesus, if, if sin produces guilt, Jesus is the one who pronounces forgiveness for that guilt. And so in each of uh, sins, uh, enslaving kinds of powers, Jesus provides a solution. The other uh, passage in the New Testament I think about a lot when it comes to sin is the famous incident of a woman caught in adultery, because that passage may get at so many aspects of sin. You know, uh, one, is that it's universal. And this is why Jesus says, he who is without sin should cast the first stone. So sin does have a way of uniquely uniting humanity because it speaks to our universal fallen condition. But the second thing is uh, we see that Jesus also acknowledges that the woman did sin. She's not just off the hook because he ends by saying, 
go and sin no more. So it's not that God is okay with sin. And at the same time, we are left to wonder, how is it that a holy God can be okay with accepting a woman caught in adultery? And obviously the answer to that is Jesus dies on the cross. And so we see that God, he hates sin. And so he must punish for sin, but um, at the same time, he's gracious to sinners. And so I, I find that that passage has been so helpful in understanding uh, various components of what sin is. That's a great point. You know, and you see that theme throughout the scripture, that there's this constant problem that keeps arising throughout the Old Testament is that God has his chosen people and then they fail and then he doesn't destroy them, you know, and he says the appropriate response is to destroy them now, right? But then he doesn't. And interestingly, in the Old Testament, it's, you know, it's not like someone says, and that's because he was going to provide a redeemer in the future or something. But we do get this sort of, there's this kind of building momentum, you know, interpreters use the language of adumbration, but this kind of building momentum that like, we need something to quench God's justice, which is good and right. And it needs to be quenched. And you see, even see it in these passages where Christ is forgiving, and yet it's not like a forgive and forget kind of thing. It's not just like, well, you know, this is just sort of moral stuff, but, you know, we can always kind of let that go or something. But that there is someone who will satisfy God's justice, who will fix the world. You know, to Peter, to your point, you know, sin breaks the world. And it's, this isn't just sort of a, a series of moral or ethical teachings that Christianity offers. This is actually the thing that breaks the world. This is why we have the unrest and the conflict and the anger and the pain in the world around us because of sin. And Jesus needs to fix it. And he does. And he fixes it both terms vis-a-vis -vis our relationship with God, or vis-a-vis -vis our relationship with creation, and our relationship with one another. And that, and that kind of leads us to the pastoral question. Uh, I'd like to ask you all, everyone, all of whom have, have ministered in churches, you know, how, do we, how do we apply this in the ministry, the counseling, the congregational care, and the preaching of the church? How, how do we apply this kind of teaching? What's the, what's the value for this, for the Christian pastor? Well, I think one of the things that we've already touched on in this podcast is um, highlighting the reality and profundity of sin. Because without that, you know, forgiveness doesn't mean anything, you know, like, and so I know some of our listeners might feel like, or at least people in our society feel like this is such a negative discussion. But in reality, without a deep understanding of sin, right, forgiveness is actually not a big deal. Right? And then, and that's very consequential because this is why for many people, like grace isn't like wonderful. It doesn't electrify. I think that's good, Paul. And, you know, I think this is why that no matter what we do about sin, in other words, even though we try to erase discussions of sin in our contemporary discourse, we can't eradicate the sense that when something does go horribly wrong, when somebody does something wrong in front of us, you know, the culture still wants to get angry at that. The culture still wants to get vindication or justice for the one who was innocent, right? So despite our suspicions of talk of sin, there is still, I think, as we see in social media, as we see in what we call cancel culture, this awareness that something is wrong about the world and there's something that we need to do to fix the wrongs in the world, right? To make sure that the criminal doesn't go unpunished, that that good judge would not simply 
turn a blind eye to wrongdoings in the courtroom. And so the scandalous thing about Christianity is that, you know, when we consider the Lord's Prayer, for example, that, that we should be forgiving as we too have been forgiven. That's incredibly scandalous in a culture nowadays that is incredibly vehement almost, right? About looking at all of your past mistakes and making sure that you've lived up to all the cultural norms, all of the right language, even there's a new orthodoxy, right? Have you been using the right kind of language? Have you been using even the right kind of pronouns to refer to particular things, right? They are, you know, looking at your past record and they're wanting to bring stuff up if they, you've, for some reason or the other, you know, have reached into their, their crosshairs, right? And, and in the middle of all that, Christ is saying, I will no longer remember any of your sins. I will no longer remember any of your past wrongdoings. And it doesn't mean, again, as Scott and you just said, Paul, right, that God simply ignores what we did, but he, he means that he will no longer hold that against us because they've been crucified on the cross. And hence the, the cancellation of our debts had been affected on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That means scandalously Christians are the first to be most forgiving. And in a culture that says we need to destroy or even cancel particular people's careers, lives, and attack them on social media, Christians are suddenly saying, let's not do that. That's incredibly scandalous, I think. And so despite, again, what the culture is saying about we, we can't talk about sin anymore, we can't talk about wrongdoing anymore, they are inconsistent with themselves. Yeah. Uh, and we are more scandalous when we choose not to go alongside them in the desire to really crucify another person, right? Because those sins have been taken care of. You know, it's, it's interesting you brought up cancel culture because Christianity is just, you know, on the one hand, I hear cancel culture critiqued because, you know, you can't critique another. You, you, we shouldn't have cancel culture because we shouldn't be, you know, um, calling out these things. People are entitled to their opinions. People are entitled to their freedom, et cetera, et cetera. Cancel culture is bad. And to the and the Christian this is like the diagonalizing, right? That that uh, that we talked about with Tim Keller and others. That well, the Christian says no. Th these are real sins for which justice needs to be be done. But then there's this brutality to cancel culture, and that there's no forgiveness. There's no opportunity to confess. Con confess. And I think we've all become a bit cynical about the apology. Um, that you know, no apology is actually well meant or. Uh, regarded as authentic. It's just people trying to escape the consequences of their action, which of course sometimes is true. But then I compare that to like Christian liturgy, like every week, if you're at a, a liturgical church, every week you probably have a, a, a moment in the service where you confess your sins and you hear the promise of forgiveness. And it's just a reminder of those two poles built into our worship. It, it reminds me of the 95 Theses, you know, uh, Luther says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So every moment of our lives, we're calling out our own sin, bringing it before the Lord. And because Christ has cleansed the heavenly sanctuary and sits at the right hand of God and intercedes on our behalf um, constantly before the Father, uh, he is the good, faithful, and sympathetic high priest. Because that is true, he is constantly pronouncing his forgiveness. And that's that's one of those wonderful moments that's built into our liturgy that I love. I love being able to stand from the pulpit and say it. And I love sitting in the pew and hearing it. You know, your sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ. There's an amazing peace 
security confidence in that that we are reminded of at least weekly, if not, if not more. And you know, it's one of the effects of what Paul said of the flattening consequences of sin, right? If all of us are sinners, we have to become more forgiving precisely because we know that we're not any better than the person that we're angry against. And there's a great Marisol Valve quote that's always cited by Tim Keller in his sermons on forgiveness, where Valve says that when we don't want to forgive someone, we're actually saying that we don't belong in the council of sinners and we stop looking at them as if they belong to the council of human beings. In other words, we have to take a look at them as human beings and hence they should deserve our love and care. And at the same time, we should consider ourselves as sinners and hence we're not any better than them. So how are we going to judge them? How are we going to adjudicate them? Well, by considering that we too are not any better and they're human beings as we are. So I think Christians, when we fail to be forgiving, I think we're also failing to manifest the forgiveness that we too have received from Jesus Christ precisely because he took on our sins upon himself. Amen. Now, I was just thinking there's so many implications of um, thinking through the Bible's teaching on forgiveness. Something that's been on my mind is we talk a lot about forgiveness, but I think one of the ways to know that we have existentially and personally come to believe in the forgiveness of sins is that it actually frees us and empowers us to ask for forgiveness from others. You see, like, I think that the human tendency is that when I'm aware that I've done something wrong, right? Like Adam and Eve, we actually have tendencies to avoid, you know, avoid the people that we have wronged. But, you know, if we believe that God has fully forgiven us, right? And he has removed our shame, um, we're able then to, you know, own our, uh, our sins fully and then take that step of actually going and being reconciled. And something I have been thinking a lot about is um, the noticeable absence of that, you know, not just among like Christians in general, but particularly among pastors. That's just been my experience where whether it's because of shame or the cancel culture, whatever it might be, there's this absence of like, hey, let's... Um, Let's pursue reconciliation. Sometimes it's said in the name of, well, love covers all sins and, you know, we don't need to have a difficult conversation. But, mm, you know, it is interesting that, like, even for us in terms of our relationship with God, we do have to fully own in our sins and knowing that God will forgive us. That's the thing that comes up a lot in Christian counseling, both, I mean, I've experienced that both in the church and in my role here at the seminary, but you know, realizing that as Christians, it's not that we're kind of white knuckling it when it comes to sin, that that that's not our natural stance. There may be times when you're sort of really, you know, not white knuckling would refer to this kind of, you know, sweaty resistance to temptation kind of thing. You know, it comes from that language, you know, AA language of a, a white knuckle drunk, you know, somebody who doesn't drink, but but is sitting there with white knuckles clutching at their chair, you know, and trying to keep themselves from going out to get a drink. You know, there's a sense in which, you know, as a Christian, because of your forgiveness, because you've been the guilt and the corruption of sin have been lifted from you, you've been taken out of the kingdom of sin and put in the kingdom of Christ, power of sin no longer has power over you. We are called to be sort of embracing the whole of that. And that's why I think sometimes Christians can come across looking sort of like, well, wow, look how comfortable they are with themselves and everything. Why do they think they're so great? And it's that, oh no, it's not that I'm so great. 
it's that I've been saved by Jesus Christ. Like I'm, I'm, I can talk about my sin to your point, Paul, you know, I don't have to hide it because part of being a believer is owning up to my failure. And yet at the same time, I don't take sin lightly. It's not like sort of an antinomian stance where you just sort of laugh off your failure before the Lord, but rather you take this you know, incredibly seriously because it's, be, um, it's, it's on account of that sin that Christ died. Right. And so you have both this sort of radical sincerity about your own shortcomings and also a radical freedom as one who's been saved in Christ. And it's, it really is in the world. It, it seems, it seems so paradoxical as to almost be ridiculous. And yet it's kind of the beauty of the gospel and the Christian life. And it's something as Christians, we're constantly having to sort of repent back towards, right. You know, that, that, that way of viewing, you know, our place before God and in creation with each other. I, I love um, this doctrine. It, it is, uh, uh, you know, nourishment to my soul. Uh, you know, I think, Tommy, I think it was you. I can't quite, or both Paul, you and Paul may have mentioned this. I mean, you agree as well. We all mentioned it, <laughs> how um, uh, it's part of our regular worship experience and how there's a pardon of sin opportunity that we're given to confess sins. And uh, I love that. It, it's uh, from a pastoral perspective to be able to offer no, you know, not that we have the authority, but because of uh, of Christ that we can offer real forgiveness. It's like a burden that lifts off your shoulder. You know, you walk into the house of God with a certain modicum of guilt and you ought to feel guilty. I mean, you sin for crying out loud. You know, you shouldn't be happy about that. And with that level of guilt. And, and I think that's the, the amazing thing about the gospel. It, it gives us the hope and the authority to be able to be released of that burden. And it's like a breath of fresh air. It's like a life restored back into your soul to know that. And I think what I love is how, you know, and we tend to forget this in our day-to-day -day because, well, for different reasons, but, you know, that there is no sin that can be committed that is greater than the redemptive work of Christ. And, and, and I love to be able to give that assurance to our people, our students, uh, just think whatever it is that you've done as unimaginable, as horrific as you might think it is. And it probably is, but guess what? The grace of God is greater and the work of Christ is stronger. And, and, you know, you, you say that verse in Romans eight, You, you say about the uh, how there's nothing that can separate you from the word of, from the love of God and <laughs> and you and you go through the you know there's like knife either knife life or death or or anything else and uh, and. Uh, just uh, it it speaks to and it's such a powerful thing to remind us of uh of our, of our redemption and um 
Yeah, it's something I've just come to deeply appreciate more and more from uh, from day to day, and from week to week. And really is it's something you can't you can't just know theologically or in, as in a kind of notarial way right because it has such such a profound deep implication for our own daily existence and our own our own lives and for those whom we love and um you know it's hard not to talk about it and and, and dig too far into it without you know kind of having that realization of, of the impact that it has on every aspect of our lives. Yeah, I mean, you know, thanks for sharing that, Peter Scott. Like um, when I was in seminary and we learned about Christ-centered preaching and, um, you know, there's a way to learn about Christ-centered preaching where it's just a methodology of interpreting scripture. But now that I think I've been in ministry for like a while now, you begin to see it's not just a methodology, but as you pastor people, every week people need to be reminded of like the full forgiveness we have um, on the cross. And you know, it's it's just something I've been thinking a lot about. As um, you know, you you meet a lot of people whose might say sins catch up to them, or you know, it's been very striking to me, especially to see many Christian leaders who. Um, have been preaching the gospel for many years and then you know they're caught in sin and even they struggle you know um, with guilt and they need to embrace you know full forgiveness and so appreciate what you shared Peter yeah thank you brothers thanks for this conversation it's such a refreshment to me and there is something about this doctrine amongst all the other doctrines as such an such such a sensitive and tender application and all the other doctrines kind of lead up to it in a way sort of ethically and experientially for us as christians they kind of breach the surface i think here and this is the first part this is the remembrance of what we've been safe from and next week we'll come back together and we'll get a reminder of what we've been saved to so thank you for listening to the faculty podcast if you want to learn more about Reform Theological Seminary, you can go to rts.edu. That's www.rts.edu. And if you're enjoying this content, uh, the content of this podcast, please tell others about it. Share it on social media. You can even write a review for us. Those reviews uh, help us more than you know on whatever podcast platform uh, you use to listen to this podcast. But thanks for your support. And don't forget to go to rts.edu forward slash Washington forward slash podcast to post a question to the faculty for upcoming episodes. I look forward to our next episode where we'll talk about the resurrection from the dead and getting near the end of the Apostles' Creed here. So we're, we're sort of reaching the, the uh, soteriological culmination point. And so this has been a great conversation. I look forward to finishing it with you all. Until then, take care.